If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open with me to the book of 2 Timothy once more. We've been continuing our series through this book. We're in chapter 2 today. A couple weeks ago, as we were in 2 Timothy, just to kind of catch up where we've been, a couple weeks ago we were looking at just verses 11 through 13. And I draw that to your attention because they are a fascination to many. In verses 11 through 13, we find really what may be one of the first recorded hymns of the early church. It's could, some refer to it as the martyr's hymn. Others refer to it cleverly as the cross-bearer's creed. But Paul takes up these words, verses 11 through 13, to challenge Timothy. This is a, a poem of so- sorts, and particularly these words, those for Timothy, are calling Timothy and others like him to Take up the cause to follow Christ, even in challenging times. You'll remember, as Paul ended that section, or really in that section, he says in verse 11, it is a faithful saying, if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Now that is one of the foundational truths of the Christian life, union with Christ. You cannot be saved any other way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You can't be saved apart from Christ. Now, wrapped up in those verses, verses 11 through 13, we remember that there are four particular promises that are meant to challenge us to serve. There's the if and then the then. There's the condition clause and then there's that promise clause. And those are wrapped up in that song that they would have likely sung. And we trace those promises at length just two Sundays ago. But now, as Paul continues to write to Timothy, he wants to make sure that Timothy keeps in mind those things which are important. And that was certainly our highlight last week. Keep the main thing main and plain. Get to the heart of the matter. And so he says in verse 14, of these things, put in remembrance, charging them. Now, these things, the phrase these things could refer back to the four promises we just reviewed, or it could refer forward to what Paul is about to talk about in the coming verses. But regardless, Paul is making clear Timothy's role as a pastor and teacher required him to stay in the Word in order that he might teach the Word clearly. And since the Word of God is our guidebook for this life and the next, we must treasure it and teach it and follow it correctly. That is certainly what Paul is admonishing Timothy to do as we pick up our reading in verse 14. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus. Now concerning the truth, have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and have overthrown the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, making this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity." You know, people use the Bible in all sorts of weird ways. You've probably heard the story of the guy who felt he needed some guidance for reading the Bible. And so his decision for reading the Bible week to week, day to day, 
was to open the Bible, flip through its pages, land his finger on one of the verses, and whatever verse his finger and his eyes were looking at at that moment is what God wanted him to do. I would not recommend that kind of Bible reading program for you, but he's what he did. And so he flipped through the Bible and he landed his finger on one verse and it said, Judas went out and hanged himself. He thought, that can't possibly be God's will for me. And so he tried it again. He flipped through the Bible. He put his finger on a page. His finger landed on a verse and it said, go thou and do likewise. He thought, that has to be some kind of mistake. So he tried it a third time. He flipped through the Bible. He put his finger on the page, looked at the Bible, and it said, What thou doest, do quickly. I use that as, a, as an illustration. It is a funny one. But the reality is, it can be dangerous to use the Bible in a wrong way, can it? While we chuckle, it's really no laughing matter when people are using the Bible improperly. There is a handling of the Word of God. And there is a rightly handling of the word of God. And the difference between those two concepts is as vital as life and death. Mishandling the word of truth jeopardizes those who hear and those who are handling it. And this concept of rightly handling the word of God may be passed down to us so often it becomes a bit of Christianese. And we pass it around without giving it sober thought. But this emphasis that the faith of ourselves rests on a word-based, rightly word-based entity is very, very important. Paul would write this in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In fact, when Paul confronted the Christians of Galatia because they were departing from the faith, he pointed again to this word-based aspect of faith. And he said in Galatians 3, 2, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now underscore in your mind that concluding phrase, hearing with faith. This concept will be used again in the same passage a few verses later when he says, does he supply the Spirit to you who works miracles among you that so by the works of law or by hearing with faith? I bring that to your mention as we begin to explore the verses before us because God has set a standard for his message. And the message of salvation must be that which God has delivered to us by his word. The word of God is certainly no throwaway, and I hope you didn't think that coming to a church. But the word of God is also not something that we can just flippantly use however we want. We have to look at it carefully And correctly, there is a right meaning of the word of God, and there is a wrong meaning of the word of God. And that is more to be desired then for us who come to this medium of scripture, which is in fact inspired. We must come to it with an understanding that we are dealing with the treasured words of God. And as a treasure, there is a right way and a wrong way to use it. What is believed and thus what is taught ought to be sought through an understanding of the will of God in accordance with the word of God. But my question to you is, as we look at a message I'm going to entitle, watch where you're pointing the Bible. What if we're improperly exegeting the word of scripture? Paul tells Timothy to solemnly charge those under his pastoral care that if they misuse the word of God, according to verse 14, it will lead to ruin. 
We get our word catastrophe from the Greek word used here. Paul means ultimately spiritual ruin. And he names people forever recorded in scripture. I don't know many babies in our nursery named Hymenius and Philetus. And I wouldn't recommend those names because they're not recorded for you as exactly stars on their sheet for perfect attendance in Sunday school. Though I imagine they were part of church and they probably got perfect attendance in Sunday school. These are not good examples to follow. And these are those who have gone astray from the truth. They have even upset the faith of some because of their misuse of scripture. Now, while the misuse of the Bible leads to ungodliness, you ought to also know that God's people should use the Bible in a way which would grow in godliness. In other words, you could use the Bible to point down, or you could use the Bible to point up. You could use the Bible to point down to bane things of the flesh, or you could use the Bible to point up to that which is holy and sanctified. So watch where you're pointing the Bible. That's Paul's challenge to Timothy. Don't just flippantly flip through the word of God, land your finger on a verse, and expect you understand what's going on. Think. Of course, Paul's already mentioned that several times. Remember. Be careful. Study. Let's begin with the danger, then, of using the Bible to point down. It is possible to use the Bible to make progress actually in ungodliness. And the wording Paul uses here is quite challenging, not in the sense that it is difficult to understand, but in the sense that it is essential to apply. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, but shun, profane, and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. It will lead to further ungodliness. Literally, they will help make further progress in ways that oppose God. The false teachers claimed, by the way, that they were teaching God's word. And they were claiming that their teachings would actually help you in your spiritual life. That's their claim. And Paul says, yes, you will make progress all right, but you will progress in ungodliness. And Paul piles up words to drive home a frightening point. He says in verse 14 that their teaching is useless. It will be ruined to the hearers. It will bring further ungodliness. It will spread like gangrene. It will make you go astray from the truth. It will upset the faith of some. In other words, the improper use of the Bible is not a harmless activity. It destroys lives. I'm sure at some point, hopefully, if you're a hunter, you took or were taught some form of gun safety. I I say that hopefully because if I was going to go hunting with you and you did not know gun safety, I just want to recommend and let you know publicly, I don't want to go hunting with you, right? There, there, is a, there is a safety protocol. There, there is an understanding there. I, I, I so appreciate even when I first began to hunt. We, we, went, we went bird hunting more than anything in New England. You go turkey and pheasant hunting. And uh, we had a, a man there that was make sure. In fact, at our church, we even had a class you could take. They had a, a way you could go in during the week. You could take young, guy, young boys and girls, could learn gun safety. And he would show you what to do and how to be careful. This is a weapon. It can be used for good to bring food for your family. It can be used for harm. Be careful. Watch where you're pointing, the Bible or your gun. And even so, the Bible is really no harmless instrument. Just think about how the Bible is described. It's described as a sharp, two-edged sword. And so there has to be a proper care. 
This is why James would warn in James 3 verse 1, Brethren, don't all of you become teachers knowing that teachers will incur a stricter judgment. There's a carefulness and a sobriety that teachers ought to have if they are to teach the word of God because this is a powerful instrument. And Paul mentions three, then, improper uses of the Bible, what I refer to as pointing down with the Bible, how people have used it wrongly, even in the church that Timothy is now, young Timothy, beginning to pastor. And Paul says there is the danger of having Bible knowledge without Bible application. The very first warning Paul gives to Timothy is this in verse 14. Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord, that they strive not about words to no profit. In other words, he's saying, quit quarreling about words that do no good. This is apparently a phrase coined by the Apostle Paul. We know this because he used the same idea in 1 Timothy chapter 6, when he talked about false teachers who were just stirring things up with these ridiculous arguments to get people sidetracked. And he used the same phrase in 1 Timothy 6, verse 4, we read, He is proud, knowing nothing, but dotting about words and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy and strife and railings and evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men, of corrupt minds and destitute of truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Apparently, this is a very big problem. These false teachers and others were throwing out foolish and and ridiculous questions. And Paul is here combating those who like to get into intellectual banter over obscure points of doctrine, but who are not seeking to grow in obedience to God. And these so-called scholars like to prove their superior intelligence by winning theological debates But they are not growing themselves, they are not helping others grow, and they could never be accused of being evangelistic. I used to read about in seminary those in the Middle Middle Ages, right, the the monks who would argue for days about how many angels would dance on the head of a pin. We would just kind of laugh about the idea. How many angels fit on top of a pin? The truth is, who cares? That's such a foolish thing to even think about, but this can happen to us, and people can get sidetracked with these ridiculous arguments that have no real value, and that's why Paul would warn Timothy, avoid foolish questions, Titus 3 verse 9, and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. Have you ever been to a a, a Bible study that delves into the debates over small matters of theology before you even have a chance to sit down? If you have, Paul says repeatedly here in 2 Timothy, later and earlier in 1 Timothy, later in Titus, get away from such company. Anytime you use the Bible to grow in knowledge apart from godliness, you're heading for spiritual trouble. And one of the most common sins Satan uses to trip us up, even within the church, is spiritual pride. Puffing us up with supposed knowledge 
That is so trapped at the Corinthians that Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9, now concerning food offered to idols, we know, and I love his sarcasm, it drips from this phrase, he says in verse 1, all of us possess knowledge. There's a sarcastic tone in Paul's writing. In other words, he's saying, no, you don't. You don't possess all the knowledge. To know God truly in his holiness and majesty is to begin with humility. When you study the Bible, always ask, what does this teach me about God first? And how should this apply to my life next? You don't come to the word of God to win a theological debate. You come to the word of God to allow it to change your life. And it is dangerous to come to the word of God only for Bible knowledge without Bible application. It is also dangerous to have the Bible and have that Bible treasure without Bible respect. In reference to the misuse of God's word, Paul uses another interesting phrase in verse 16. He says, not only strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Earlier in 1 Timothy, he uses the same phrase in reference to knowledge when he talks about this avoiding irreverent babble the false teachers supported their arguments with. He would say this in 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. If you look back there, he'll say, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. The avoidance is further elaborated at the end of chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, verse 16, we read this, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. The word profane could be translated worldly. It it refers to that which is unhallowed. It, It has the nuance of trafficking lightly, in the things of God, or using the word of God for worldly gain. This is the sort of thing that is rampant, even in American Christianity in our day, when we talk about a health and wealth heresy, which is often the most blatant form of this, but also many Christian self-help books approach the Bible with some perspective of becoming a better you rather than reverently pleasing a holy God. And in this way, it is using the Bible for worldly success, but perhaps most tragically are to note two things. One, this kind of Bible treatment is always a popular way to use the Bible. Look what he says in the very next verse. When he says, avoid that, he says in verse 17, he says, their words will eat as doth a canker. What he's saying is their talk is going to spread like gangrene. Some of the largest churches in America use the Bible to help people meet their selfish goals. And they'll actually set up entire series of sermons on how to do that. And don't judge a church, friend, by how big it is, but by how sound its preaching of the Word of God is. And secondly, the kind of Bible treatment is deadly. Sure, it spreads like a canker, But it spreads like a canker. It is gangrene. That elicits an idea of something that is spreading quickly, but eventually will result in ugly death if it goes untreated. You must get to the root of the problem. 
I've got to be honest, this, this particular verse is easier for me to illustrate this week because something you don't know, but I know. On Sunday, last Sunday, my jaw was locking up. I don't know if you could notice that. Maybe you just felt like I was spitting more during my messages than normal. But I really felt like my whole jaw was just, I couldn't even open my mouth to eat a sandwich. It was just, it kept locking up. And I knew I was flying out on Mondays. There's nothing I can do about it. And why is it you always get sick on the weekends? You know, it's just it's always the way it is. So my jaw was locking up. I preached through the services. I flew out to Pennsylvania for camp. I get there and the whole side of my face was just swelling up. And uh, I get to the camp, and the camp nurse was sitting at the table, and I said, I cannot eat this food. And she said, you, you, let me look in your mouth. And she said, you need to go to the ER. So I went to the ER on Monday of camp week. That was a really fun way to start the camp week. And they got there, and they gave me uh, antibiotics, which I'm still on, and a steroid pack, which I am uh, just today is the last of that steroid pack. By the way, that is like taking the, the first day is six pills, and then you go down, right? That first day is like taking like 10 cups of coffee in the morning. You, you don't, so don't worry about my preaching. I felt great. I, I felt amazing. I was doing great. But, but the reason that Camp Counselor, by the way, I went to the ER, praise the Lord. God was in it. I went to the ER. Nobody was in line. I got there just in time. I got checked out. I got my treatment. I got my medications. I showed back up at the camp 10 minutes before the first chapel and preached the message. I was ready to go. And they got my medicine for me. It's all good. But there's a reason why that needed to be treated. You don't treat something like that. I probably wouldn't be preaching here today on Sunday, right? I, I needed something to stop the problem. I needed something to fix what ailed me. That's what he's saying here. There's a, there's a gangrene in the church. It's spreading. You have to treat it. We need a word from God, but not just your strung together, ten secrets to a happy life with a few scattered verses to plug into your cleverly alliterated outline. We need actual word. By appealing to the flesh and the lure of the world, these false teachers draw people away because it's easier to prepare a sermon, again, for ten secrets to a healthy life or a healthy marriage with a few verses ripped out of context that fit your points you already made than it is to actually study the Word of God. It's not reverent to the Word of God. I, I, I can't tell you. I, I, I've honestly heard many messages that talk about the Word but never get into the Word. Be careful. And there's a danger of having Bible truth without Bible honesty. Can you imagine your name being forever recorded in the Bible? <laughs> well, I hope if your name were to be recorded, it would be a good recording. These two men are recorded here, and if they did correct their error at some point, this would have been pretty embarrassing. Because it says, among them are Hymenius and Philetus. And these men are totally wrong. They were teaching half-truths as if it were the whole truth. Which, by the way, is often Satan's method, isn't it? Half-truths which are not the whole truth. And look what they do in verse 18. Who concerning the truth have erred. In other words, when he says erred, it means they have swerved from the truth. And how have they swerved away from the truth? Well, saying that the resurrection is past already... And by that, they are overthrowing the faith of some. Now, these false teachers had been teaching that the resurrection had already taken place. And in this case, they were using Paul's actual very words to make their point. Remember, Paul would often write about the fact that Christ is risen. 
and that we will be risen with him. We'll read them often, even at, at funerals. We sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. And Christ being the first fruits of them who slept. And so they're using even Paul's own words to make their false point. But Paul also taught that there is a future resurrection of the body. And these false teachers deny that future resurrection. And they argue that the resurrection was only spiritual, not physical, and therefore had already happened. Now, what's the big deal? Well, Paul answers the big deal in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if there is no resurrection, bodily resurrection, then not even Christ is raised from the dead. That's the big deal. But here's why I want you to mark it well. Heresy always begins as truth out of balance. There's always an element of truth in the teachings of cults. And that's how they entice people. That they even use verses to back up their error. And so they prey on the untaught and lead people away. If someone were to hand me today a $3 bill with Donald Trump's face on it, I won't think I can buy a Wendy's Frosty with that dollar bill. Would you? Probably not. But if you handed me something that was cleverly disguised as counterfeit, and myself not being exactly trained on how to detect that, I, I, I may fall prey to a counterfeit. It looks closer to the real deal. A $3 bill with Donald Trump's face on it, it's not going to trip me up, I'm sorry. But a close counterfeit, it just might. And that's why we must examine even popular worldly teachings which are cleverly cloaked with the Bible that are flooding into the church in our day because they promote half-truths as if it's the whole truth. And that's always been the devil's temptation. Half-truths as if it's the whole truth is not the truth. But what if we fail to properly exegete the word of God? The fact that in four out of six verses here, Paul presents the negative should alarm us enough to examine ourselves and examine our church. Using the Bible is not enough. You can use the Bible to your own destruction if you're pointing it in the wrong direction. And so Paul says, since the word of God is our guidebook for this life and the next, we must treasure it, certainly, but we must teach it and follow it correctly. But while there is a negative aspect, we praise the Lord that a powerful instrument such as the Bible also gives us a positive aspect. While there is a danger to pointing the Bible down, there is a delight of using the Bible to point up. And two verses in this passage, verse 15 and verse 19, focus on the positive of using God's word the right way. And God's people should use the Bible to make progress in godliness. And the Bible wasn't given to satisfy our curiosity, friend, about end times or fill our heads with facts. It was given to grow us in godliness. And so we point the Bible up towards God, and as we do so, we are diligent with what we're doing. In these verses we read, study to show thyself approved, verse 15. 
The word study means be diligent. It's a word that ought to convey a sense of zeal or enthusiasm for the word. In fact, the original readers would have understood that Apostle Paul was calling them to hard work when he said study. This is a diligence. And Paul used this identical word in his letter to the Ephesians when he said, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And then he says, eager, that's the same word, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Diligent. Be diligent. Redeemed saints are to be eager. So many Christians are baptized with a haphazard, lazy attitude rather than a diligent approach to the Word of God. How few have systematically read, studied, and memorized the Word of God? How few jump from passage to passage rather than looking into the full context of it? They aren't seeing and seeking to know God and how he wants them to think, to live, to act. And their lives may be falling apart, but they don't search diligently to discover what God's word tells them to do about their problems. You ever had to sit through a safety training course for work? And in that moment, most people's eyes glaze over and nod off as they go over all of the safety protocols But suppose the person giving the training session began by saying, we're experiencing a dangerous situation. The building needs to be evacuated immediately. But to ensure your safety, here's what you need to know. In that moment, everybody will pay attention. That's what Paul is saying. The key to being motivated to be diligent in God's word is to recognize the urgency of your calling. There is a dangerous false heresy that is permeating in. Be diligent and be present. Notice how Paul continues his charge. Study, he says, to show thyself approved, verse 15, unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God, He says, notice, present yourself approved, rightly dividing the word of God, an approved workman that needeth not to be ashamed. By the way, the word present is used by Paul two other notable times in his letters. It's used in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, and it's used again in Ephesians 5, verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church. This is a word which speaks of a bride being presented to her bridegroom. It's a, it's a very personal, loving act. It means she is giving herself completely. The complete focus is on each other. I like to remind, when I'm doing weddings, I like to remind even the bridal party, and particularly the groomsmen who've had a lot of, you know, they're telling a lot of jokes and stuff. I just want to remind them during the rehearsal, just FYI, guys, nobody is here to see you. Just want to let you know that. that none of, nobody at this wedding is here to see the bridal party. They're all here to stand and see the bride when she comes in. And, and also to look and see what the groom is doing at that moment. Is he crying? What, what's going on? Is his, are his legs shaking? You know, how's he feeling up there? Has the pastor had to support him there as he faints? Well, what is it like? But we are not there. We are not there to see the bridal party. Sorry to burst the bubble of all future bridal party members. We're just... We're just not there for you. We're there for the couple. 
The word present here is that idea. It carries that idea. When, when he's presenting, it's presenting like a bridegroom, a bride to a bridegroom. And, and that's how we should come to the Bible. It's not a book of principles to live by. The Bible tells us of Christ's enduring love for his bride. We should seek to please him. We, our focus should be fully and completely, undistractedly upon God and his word. Remember last week we talked about Jim Elliot, and I quote it again because it's worth mentioning. When, when Jim Elliot, who was later martyred in the jungles of Ecuador, was a student at Wheaton College, here's what he wrote in his diary. I kind of referenced it, but I want to read to you what he wrote in his journal. He said this, My grades came through this week and were as expected lower than last semester. However, I make no apologies and admit I've let them drag a bit for study of the Bible, in which I seek the degree of A-U-G, approved unto God. Be present and be working. Already in chapter 2, Paul has portrayed several pictures of what Christian life and service is all about. In verse 3, he says the Christian service is like a good soldier. In verse 5, it's like a good athlete. In verse 6, it's like a good farmer. And now Paul adds another metaphor. In verse 15, he's like a good workman. And here the metaphor is that of a craftsman, one that works with his hands. You're, you're a carpenter, and God's word is your set of tools. And, and rather than being sloppy and nailing together a table that will surely fall apart, do a decent job so that you will not be ashamed when God so sits at your table. You are, you are a craftsman. You are a workman. And the word translated rightly dividing means to cut a path or a road in a straight direction. To use a carpenter metaphor, it means to cut a straight line. The idea of a carpenter, again, is measure twice. What do you say? Cut once. Be careful. And the idea is not to be distracted or off course by false teachings, but accurately and straightforwardly cut through the doctrines of Scripture so that you and your hearers can reach a destination of godliness. And change doesn't come from people feeling good or liking certain ideas that they think come from Scripture. Change comes when people are confronted with God's truth and submit to God's truth in their life. And thus we will all, but especially those who teach God's word, be held accountable to how skillfully we are working. So be working and be standing. It's kind of scary to be reading about professing Christians who in verse 14 have been ruined, who according to verse 18 have gone astray, and according to verse 18 have been upset in their faith. It's pretty discouraging. You may wonder, how can I keep on path? How can I keep from being like them? How can I stay upright? Look what he says in verse 18, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past. That's how they have done it. Look at verse 19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. I can stand firm, for one, because God is the author and finisher of my faith. 
And number two, everyone who names the name of the Lord can stay away from that. So the foundation of using the Bible properly comes from the one who actually wrote the Bible. God himself. I I can stand firm even when others are using the word of God to manipulate and to, to water down and to change truth. I can come back to the same unchanged word of God knowing God himself is its author. But what if? What if we fail to properly exegete the word of scripture? Most churches and institutions like ours have a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to their music ministry. You're as likely to find a rock concert hosted in this auditorium as you are to find a crucifix as part of our decor. And I agree with that. Not on my watch is our attitude, and over my dead body is the attitude of others in the congregation. I get that. I, I agree. I appreciate the attitude. I just wish we had the same attitude with what was being preached as well as what is being sung. Honestly, this shouldn't be all that controversial. Paul urged Timothy to preach the word. Not stories, not red meat, not jokes. Why? Because the word of God is the only thing that we need. And we should have the same serious attitude which says, if someone to violate the standards of the music ministry that this church has built for years, we would say we would never and we should continue to hold that line. I'm just saying we need to have that same line when it comes to the word of God, lest we are being hypocrites. There has to be an attitude that says, a pastor that comes up and just tells jokes, not on my watch. A preacher that comes up here just with red meat and stories over my dead body. You ever heard the different types of preaching? There's skyscraper preaching. You know what that is. Story upon story upon story with no point. That's skyscraper preaching. You know what scuba diver preaching is? It's when you go down deep, stay down long, and come up dry. That's scuba diver preaching. The word of God is the only thing that we need. So how are we yielding this sword? Is it to you like a sharp instrument that cuts to the soul and changes your life? Or is it to you a dangerous weapon that has cut you and others wrongly? Because there is a handling of the word of truth. And there is a rightly handling of the word of truth. And the difference between those two concepts is as vital as life and death. And mishandling the word of truth jeopardizes those who hear as well as those who are handling it. So watch where you're pointing the Bible. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the privileges ours to come to your word. To be careful with what we are doing with it. Lord, it is our immense privilege and honor to handle the word of God. But even as we handle it, Lord, it is our great and careful desire and prayer that we would handle it rightly and correctly. Lord, in the quietness of this moment, we are going to take a time to respond to you. And as we respond, Lord, may we respond, each one of us, with an open heart before you, Lord, being honest with ourselves. Maybe we've been diverted by all manner of silly, profane words. Lord, we just need to get back to that which is main and plain.
Lord, there may be others in this room, though, as they hear a message such as this, they begin to realize in their own soul that there's a, there's a carefulness and sobriety about the Word of God that they've never claimed as theirs because they've never accepted Christ as their Savior. And may they come to you, Lord, as the Savior of their sins and change their life. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just take a moment to respond even as the instruments begin to play? There are some in the front that would help you if you would like to meet. They will meet you up here and direct you to someone where you can seek counsel and help from the Word of God. pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. May we value it here as a ministry and trust and cling to it alone. We pray this in your name.